Well, welcome everyone uh, on this warm evening on, on Tuesday in London. Uh, we've got beer to protect us, so we're okay. It's, I'm delighted to uh, welcome Toby Green, who is the professor of uh, African history at KCL. And Toby has written a very important book. Uh, the second edition, uh, he's teamed up with Thomas Fatsy. The book is called The COVID Consensus. Uh, and the order of day is basically, Toby's going to say a few words, um, introduce it, introduce us to some of the ideas in the book, and then we're going to have a, a good Q&A for over an hour and get underneath some of the issues. So, Toby, welcome. Okay, thanks very much. Okay, thank you, William, and thank you, uh, everybody, for coming along this evening. Uh, it is a warm evening. We'll try and keep you entertained. Or, actually, I think entertained is the wrong word. We'll try and keep a, an interesting discussion going. Um, I'm grateful for the opportunity to talk about this uh, in front, you know, in front of you this evening. Um, so yeah, this is a co-authored book. Uh, Thomas, my co-author, is based in Rome, so obviously couldn't be here this evening. But I thought it'd be. So I'm just going to talk probably for like 15 or 20 minutes about the book. Um, so the book, and actually the history of the book itself is an interesting starting point. So I will talk about that a little bit. So I'm a historian, uh, as William said, I teach at King's here in London. Uh, I'm a historian of West Africa of in fact, West, pre-colonial West Africa, mainly 16th, 17th, 18th centuries. Uh, and my previous book, A Fistful of Shells, was about uh, the history of inequality and the relationship between West African history and world history as inequality grew in, this, in that period of time. So a lot of you will be thinking, that sounds like a field which isn't very relevant to COVID. Uh, and of course, that is one of the places to start with. You know, over the last three years, we heard that, you know, people who were not effectively modelers, mathematical modelers uh, and adjacent uh, fields of, 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 of science and epidemiology didn't, were straying outside their field if they pronounced or had an opinion or directed a point of view around the COVID uh, policies which were rolled out. So that anybody who wasn't in that field was effectively... Uh, was, was, was ineligible to have a, a legitimate opinion or a, legit, or a legitimate view which should be taken, account, taken into account for policy purposes. Um, and so the irony of that, of course, is that while this was happening, policies were being rolled out on the basis of these epidemiological models and, and the advice of the modelers, which had massive implications for ethics, for psychology, for economics, uh, for inequalities around the world, uh, for all kinds of things which those particular people had no expertise in at all and which the rest of us will now be um, living with the consequences of for many years. So in fact my own view is that being a historian of inequality is a pretty relevant field for considering uh, what has happened in the last three years because what we've seen is uh, a massive expansion of inequalities both of course within Britain uh, where we're talking about this this evening but also between countries in the global south which is where I've done a lot of most of my work you know the, the consequences have been catastrophic and we detail a lot of that in the book and that and that was how I've came to write so the book has had two editions the first edition I came to write it because of that because I've been working for a decade or more with colleagues in different African countries and very quickly uh, was talking to people about the impact of what was happening and they were absolutely catastrophic um, and I'll talk about that in a bit of detail in a bit but so very quickly, you know, the UN by the end of March 2020 reported that half of jobs in Africa were projected to be lost because of the COVID response. Half of jobs in Africa. 
So, you know, how could this... Po I was thinking to myself at that point, how can this possibly be a, a sane policy, given, given that? Uh, and that was where I started from when I wrote the first edition, which came out in April 2021. Thomas Fatsi then wrote to me uh, and said he wanted to translate the book into Italian. Great. Okay. This was June 2021. Uh, he's a well-known uh, journalist and translator in Italy. Then, of course, I don't know if you remember, but the summer of 2021 was possibly even more insane than the previous 18 months uh, as the vaccine passports and the pressure and the discussion about whether children were going to be eligible for the COVID vaccine. Chris Ritchie overriding the advice of the Joint Committee on Vaccination about the, about the recommendation to vaccinate uh, 12 to 15 year olds. And initially, where the Green, green Pass began, it was much worse. Thomas wrote to me at the end of, in September and said, actually, you know what, this book cannot be published in Italy at the moment. It's not possible to publish this book in Italy because of the way in which the public discourse had developed. So we then developed our uh, working relationship and uh, we wrote the second edition together. So the very fact of the history of the book tells us something about the period we've lived through, I think, and the way in which discussion about policies which had such radical implications for so many people was systematically crushed. And it was part of what we talk about in the book, which was effectively the construction of a single narrative. There was a single narrative of science, of accepted opinion, of debate, and we saw this in many countries around the world, and effectively gaslighting of people who had any different opinion. Uh, and that was the COVID consensus, which we, you know, the, the phrase we coined in the book. Uh, so the fundamental theory, uh, you know, thesis of the book is that what we saw in the last three years was the rapid acceleration of uh, disaster capitalism, which Naomi Klein uh, wrote about in The Shock Doctrine, this idea that, you know, crises, uh, which came out just after the financial crisis in, I think, in the year of the financial crisis, 2008, uh, which was a, a critique from the left, arguing that, uh, you know, crises like the financial crisis are actually ways in which uh, corporations in the neoliberal frameworks leveraged wealth and power and, and effectively losses were socialised, picked up by the state with the result of future austerity as we saw throughout the 2010s. So that was a clear critique of the, finan of the response to the financial crisis and the way in which uh, co uh, transnational capitalism uh, benefited from that in so many ways. Uh, and, you know, as far as Thomas and I are concerned, you know, it's pretty clear that that analysis is very relevant indeed to what happened in the COVID era, uh, where we saw enormous profiteering uh, on the uh, from, from multinational companies, you know, development of mRNA vaccines, which I, uh, for those of you who may not know, you know, there's a 2000% a profit on each dose of vaccine. Um, uh, provided by uh, uh, mRNA vaccines, which I think has actually increased as the price of the vaccine went up in 2022. Uh, and yet to raise the question of whether uh, the revolving door, which after all so many left-wing commentators have criticised or critiqued, um, uh, to raise the question of whether the revolving door between corporations and uh, and government may have had anything to do with some of the policies that were developed was to, you know, be branded a conspiracy theorist. And one of the things we do in the book, and perhaps I'll just read that section, actually, I think it is very relevant, um, is discuss this concept of conspiracy theory and the way it relates to questions of capital, uh, which I think is really important. Um, I'll just read, it's just a, a couple of paragraphs. Um, the erosion of the distinction between public and private providers 
state and, you know, what Blair called, you know, the public-private partnership, which he rolled out from the, in, the, in the Blair years, has been widely discussed for years through the concept of the revolving door between government and industry. Why should it be surprising, let alone conspiratorial, to suggest that this revolving door may have influenced some of the policy choices that were made? On the other hand, some of these explanations are conspiracy theories. Certainly there are many outlandish conspiracy theories regarding the COVID-19 pandemic, which are rightly labeled as such, 5G, vaccine microchips, global depopulation, and so on. Some who hold to these theories also see the coordination of global economic power as a conspiracy. In our view, Thomas and my view, that's a mistake. This is simply how economic power works to maintain, concentrate and grow itself and always has. Indeed, it's that tendency of capital to concentrate itself and produce growing inequalities that writers and activists from the left have historically sought to criticise. At the same time, the idea that leading figures of major commercial interests meet regularly and develop visions of how they see the future unfolding, which they then seek to mould through new programmes of investment and research, shouldn't be labelled a conspiracy. It's a simple statement of fact, as observed through the regular meetings of the World Economic Forum at Davos. Coordination is not the same thing as conspiracy, which by definition happens in secret. And that's something that people all, on all sides of the debate could usefully keep in mind. So just as in the financial crisis of 2008, we saw exactly the same coordination of openly, co open coordination of uh, corporate interests, uh, which made massive profits out of the COVID response. And, 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 you know, it's our view that that is the fundamental explanatory paradigm for understanding what happened. So the, just in brief, because I know I've already been talking for a while, but the book is divided into two parts. The first part is called A Chronicle of uh, the Pandemic. And really, it's you know, hard to remember sometimes all the crazy things that happened. We just, and we, we, as we say, you know, just trying to work out what happened and the order which it happened in is already a pretty challenging task. Uh, and that is what we try and do in that first part of the book. So we have five chapters. We first of all look at what we call, you know, uh, the, a, a bad start, the origins question, the way in which Anybody who thought that the Wuhan lab may have had anything to do with uh, the emergence of the COVID-19 virus was shut down as a conspiracy theorist. And the evidence which subsequently emerged that this followed a meeting convened by Anthony Fauci on February the 1st, 2020, where a number of those present claimed to be 50-50 or even more on the side that it could actually well have come from a lab leak. And yet three days later, on February the 4th, a letter began to be drafted, which was subsequently okayed, approved by Fauci, dismissing anybody who claimed that as a conspiracy theorist. So we look at that process, we look at how individuals closely, closely allied with the Wuhan Institute of Virology were subsequently placed on key commissions of inquiry looking at whether the virus leaked from the Wuhan Institute of Virology. And we then see that paradigm of a single scientific narrative shutting down any alternative as the model which then was deployed throughout the rest of the next two years when it came to the question of, quote, the science. Lockdowns is the next chapter. December 2019, November 2019, I'm sorry, the WHO published a report on non-pharmaceutical interventions in pandemics, which didn't mention the lockdown word, the word lockdown once, uh, which recommended that, uh, for example, uh, quarantining of asymptomatic individuals, uh, contact tracing, border closures should be never, should be used never under any circumstances. Lockdowns have actually been implemented in the Ebola outbreak in Sierra Leone and Liberia uh, in 2014 and have been deemed a failure. So it's quite extraordinary that we then saw this policy rolling out around the world. How did that happen? We look at that in the third chapter, the rise of the single scientific narrative, uh, the, the idea that the lockdowns 
were needed until there was a vaccine, the shutting down of alternative treatments through policies subsequently uh, through uh, research program, uh, research papers, for example, on hydroxychloroquine, subsequently deemed to be the biggest frauds in medical history, the role of propaganda in that. And then we look at the vaccine rollout, uh, the coercion that was involved in the mandates, the enormous profiteering involved in the in uh, in the produce in 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 the vaccine development, which was publicly financed, and then private profits were reaped from that. Um, and that's what we try and do in the first part of the book, in just understanding what happened. And, and and just the what is enough. People will argue about the why for a long time, but the what is enough to understand. That. And fundamentally, it comes back to what I you know this 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 erosion of the boundary between public and private, the revolving door between corporations and governments rolled out in the previous four decades of neoliberal um, governance had led to this outcome, which is why the subtitle to our book is that this is a critique from the left. We, we, you know, Thomas and I are writers from the left, uh, but as we also look at in the first part of the book, you know, the mainstream left, as we all know, went missing in action. Second part of the book, was is about consequences. We have four chapters in that book. Did lockdown save lives? We look at the evidence. Yeah, I mean, there's been quite a lot of the recent paper come out on this as well. You know, countries which didn't lock down, Sweden and Nicaragua, which incidentally were ruled by governments of the left and centre-left, didn't have notably worse outcomes than their neighbours. In fact, Sweden has the lowest, one of the lowest excess death rates in the OECD. Nicaragua has one of the lowest excess death rates in, in the Americas. Difference between North and South Dakota, which followed completely different policies, is really quite small. Then we look at global, massive increases in global inequality, the enormous catastrophe of education. We know about that in our own country. One in five children not regularly attending school now. 4.5 million school children out of education permanently in Uganda alone. Children not allowed out of their homes in the Philippines for 17 months. In Angola, it was seven months. I mean, you know, the list just goes on. In India, only 37% of rural school children were edu attending education for two years. Uh, it is just an unmitigated catastrophe. In massive increases in uh, child labour, child marriage, uh, enormous impacts in our own country, as we know, on health, other health conditions. And I think this is an interesting aspect of the book. You know, we look at, actually, this was a global response in the sense that, you know, well, as we know, conditions which are most fatal in our own, in, in Britain, uh, cardiac problems, cancers were are the ones which are now, you know, we're paying the price of that. But it was the same around the world, you know, so in Africa it was malaria. The conditions which were most, which killed most people were the ones which were ignored. So, for example, I talked to a colleague in Mozambique in March 2022, about 18 months ago, he told me that at that time, no, all other vaccine programmes except for COVID had been stopped and they hadn't restarted. So they had been paused for two years in Mozambique for the endemic diseases, TB, yellow fever, uh, measles, which people, which young children in Mozambique die from. I mean, it, it's quite extraordinary. Impacts which are very little known widely. Rapid tests. So the COVID rapid tests. You know, we all were told that the solution to this was COVID rapid testing. What we weren't told was that the uh, COVID rapid tests were made by companies who had previously made malaria rapid tests. They stopped making malaria rapid tests and they diversified into COVID rapid tests, which were more profitable. And I spoke to a senior a malaria expert from the University of Lagos Medical Hospital about six weeks ago, told me there's still a shortage of malaria rapid tests because of that. Could go on. Uh, we also then finally, in the final chapter, look at what we call the ethics and practice of authoritarian capitalism. The, the structures of governance of the media, trusted news initiative, some of you may know about, 
uh, and of uh, and of the ethical framework which created a paradigm which meant it was so very hard for people to feel that they that they could change the COVID consensus without facing uh, consequences which they didn't want to face. Uh, I think I'm beyond that now. Uh, but um, I think you know my conclusion would be you know. I think, as I hope I've shown, being a historian of inequality is a pretty relevant field for discussing what's happened, in fact. One of the things we learn is that, you know, you need a really wide range of expertise to assess what the impacts of particular policies will be. And if we leave it to what I will call, in quotes, the mad scientists, uh, then we will reap the consequences of that, because there are so many other issues to take account of. Uh, you know, I think if we're summarising, I think clearly the boundaries between public and private, uh, the, uh, relate, uh, uh, and, and the relationship between media and social media and uh, information, the role of information in, in the age we're living in, the role of technology. You know, I think in many ways what I would say is we really lived through a crisis of technology. You know, many of the things that we were told were the answer were only possible because of technology. Remote working, vaccine passports, you know, uh, surveillance, you know, these were the, you know, the health surveillance, these are possible because of technology and reflect the relationship and the change in consciousness which we've all developed because of technology and which made us think that tech would be the solution as tech is so often the solution to many things in our lives. And of course, it turned out that it wasn't quite like that. I'll Brilliant. There. Well, listen, thanks very much, Toby. Um, um, if if I, I think I really enjoyed the book, and I think it's, it's one of these books that uh, was necessary. We needed this book, and very few other people were doing it. Uh, and so, if you're happy, I'll, what I'll do is I'll kick off with a, a few questions of my own, and then we'll open it up. Um, what's intriguing about what you call the COVID consensus or the science was that it wasn't fully contested. It was barely contested, actually, in this society. And it's intriguing. I, you had libertarians contesting it. I'd expect them to on a freedom basis. Um, but left-leaning progressives in this jurisdiction and in the United States didn't fully contest it. And then interestingly, they actually fell into line. And one of the reasons I think you hint in the book that they fell into line on, you know, they clustered, was because contesting the narrative was something Trump did. Yeah. And, and that was a sort of yuck factor. Well, if, he, if he's against it, we can't possibly be against it and so they fell into line and didn't fully contest it but I do you agree that that reflects very badly on them if they claim to be sort of truth-based evidence-based people I mean I don't want to you know I think one of the things we I learned thinking about this is you know what social animals we are as mm. human beings I think lockdown taught us that and you know it's hard to step outside of your in-group Mm. you know, uh, and be ostracised by it, you know, it's thing, something that most people don't want to do. And at the end mm. of the day, you know, we all have beliefs, we all have values, but we're also social animals. And, mm. you know, I don't want to condemn anybody for the decision, you know, for the reasons why. And I think that, you know, there, I mean, I was insulated by this because I had never done social media of any kind mm. before the pandemic, yeah. of any kind at all. Yeah. So uh, I had a burner phone. Uh, so I just didn't get the wave of propaganda which was coming in and, and you know, people, you know, in my, the people I work with, uh, telling, you know, basically telling me what I should be thinking about this. Mm -hmm. So I think that was an insulation. Uh, but again, that comes back to, you know, this is a, a question of how technology is changing us as, as, as creatures, as humans. And, 
and, and, and, and how, and I think one of the things we certainly learn is how much more quickly uh, a group will coalesce around opinions than might have happened in they, the, we in heard, the before we? social media. Very rapidly, we sort yes, of heard, yes, and what's my yes, group doing? Yeah. It was a really, it was a huge phenomenon, I think, in the pandemic, that, that effect. Um, the second thing I want to ask about is, is sort of not why it happened, but, but what happened in the sense that um, the oddest thing I found, and I did maybe did about 30 interviews in the pandemic generally, and we kicked against it. We, we supported the first lockdown and then we kicked against every other lockdown. I thought for very sensible utilitarian reasons, because my feeling was that the, the actual effects on human beings of the lockdowns themselves was not properly quantified. So here's my next question. It just seemed, it still seems odd to me that this government and many governments did not make any serious attempt to map and quantify and try and measure the effects of the lockdowns, mm. i.e. the cure, mm. properly. It just didn't happen. Why? I mean, you sort of hint at the end of one chapter as why maybe that didn't happen. Why didn't that happen? Why? Well, I think there were, t for me, there'd be two fundamental reasons. The first is that people panicked. We know that. Everybody here would agree with that. And uh, but they panicked. And as we know, one of the consequences of that was that they threw aside the previous pandemic plans. Mm -hmm. They didn't follow the previous pandemic plans. Now, I spoke to a very senior figure who'd worked for about a decade on constructing the pandemic plans prior to COVID. And he told me that uh, they were working on the reasonable, on, on the working assumption that, you know, if a new pandemic came along, it could kill upwards of 300,000 people in the country. And they didn't think that, you know, they just thought that, will ha that is how it will be. Mm. And, you know, this is a person on the left. Suddenly, to hold that view was to be a granny killer, to, you know, be, as he said, be a, a Trumpian. And, uh, and, and so you had to just completely reject everything that was in that plan. As a result, oh, we'll just follow what China's doing. But as a result, you know, as we all know, institutions grind slowly. Producing mm. a cost-benefit analysis isn't going to happen overnight. And, you know, there's a whole lot of institutional reasons why... Yeah. Um, yeah, I get why people wouldn't do that. And then I think as we also say in the book, once that initial wave was out of the way and then the policy was becoming institutionalized, you know, the, the dangers of doing a cost benefit analysis have become greater and greater because, mm. you know, it becomes, you know, well, for anybody thinking yeah. about it, the costs are so clearly enormous that you don't really want to do that. Yeah, no, it just seems, still seems very, very odd that they just didn't go there. It was really curious. I think some of it may be down to the, uh, the structure of the government itself. You had, you had Nerve Tag, you had SAGE. Those are commit committees that could advise the government on, yeah. on epidemiology and viral uh, um, load and so on. But, but you had no committee extant that, said, that was there to say, actually, if you do this, if you, do, if you implement uh, you know, draconian lockdowns, these effects, you know, on, on cancer, heart disease, they're just, the committee wasn't there. What I'm saying is that even if it was hastily put together, yeah. those questions should have been asked. I still think it's the oddest thing that no one, that they sort of got away with that. And none of the questioning at five o'clock from the, from the media really got at it. That was, that was, I still think that's very odd. Yeah, I mean, I agree with you. I mean, I agree. I think it is, it, you know, it's unforgivable. But I think, uh, you know, I, I suppose I can respond with an anecdote, which is, you know, when I did present the first edition of the book, at a, at, a, at a center for African studies. And I raised the issues of cost-benefit analysis. One of the people who, who attacked me said, I'm so glad there wasn't a cost-benefit analysis. You know, I don't think we should be considering the costs of saving, you know, older people's lives and this kind of thing. And, you know, that was 
the COVID consensus. You know, the, that was the more, uh, that was one of the most important things. You now, for all that we were told this was about science, it, it was actually about morality. Then this was a moral position that was put forward, and you can't argue with a moral position. No, but but that yeah. but it's, it's so good that you brought that up because because you know, it, it the the um, the wheel literally span off the axle and went somewhere else. Yeah, I mean, you know, we were educated in this country that we should do evidence-based policy. And in this country, NICE uh, produce, they quantify the efficacy of drugs and they price it. And the price of a, a quality adjusted life year, what, which is what the health service is buying, is about between 15 and 30,000. And if it goes beyond 30,000 pounds, we don't buy it yeah. because politics is choices. You have to choose what you're doing. The oddest thing, again, it was a, a quant in, in the city, uh, Dr. George Cooper, actually used um, National Audit Office information and, and worked out the price of a quality yeah, yeah to say yeah. to say no but to, but to, for a covid quality yeah to save right. and he, he worked it out of something like a, a million pounds so there'd been inflation yeah. uh, of the quality cost uh, literally of 1600 percent. so rationality just, no, I mean, just I exploded the, the quality you know i mean yeah. I, I think there was a scottish doctor malcolm kendrick who wrote about this quite early on i think it was april 2020 and and you know there was yeah, it's absolutely right. And, you know, and that was clear and that was evidence that was there. And I think fundamentally this was about political judgment because as you say, if it had been evidence-based, yeah. it was clear, but it was a political judgment. And the political judgment was to do with, you know, as somebody said to me over that summer of 2020, you know, you've got to be incredibly ballsy to just not do what everybody else is doing and, you know, say, you know, we think that's wrong. Sweden didn't do it, but then in Sweden the policy was by law dictated not by the government but by and the signal. They said technologies. Yeah, and, well, and let's I'll ask one or maybe two final questions before we open up. I, I think that's a, a fascinating thing because a lot of people that were arguing for a sort of slightly more Swedish approach, and we were, and it's and it's interesting that they 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 have been vindicated and obviously transportability between one jurisdiction and another, even on policies. It's the first thing you learn in social science that uh, your policy might not be transportable. But I think Sweden has been vindicated and we would ask, uh, you know, could we have done it here? And the problem, I, I advocated it, but the problem is that um, there was non-alignment between our expert committees and the government. So you've got to ask yourself, was Johnson and the government, were they ever going to go against Novotag and Sage? I'm, I'm not sure realistically in the real political world they ever were. So that's the difference between us and Sweden. Yes. Sweden had alignment. And but, the then government... one, but then one of the differences between us and Sweden is also that, it comes back to the point I was talking about, about the revolving door, that in our jurisdiction, most of the members of those committees had been through the revolving door yeah. from corporation to government, whereas in Sweden, Tegnell had not. He had had a traditional career as a state epidemiologist. So he stuck to his knitting. Yeah. Yeah, no, I get that. Um, I, it, it, well, it's partly incentives. I think it's also partly a worldview. You know, if you've been through those different worlds, you know, you, 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 you must think that, you know, AstraZeneca or whoever it will be will provide the solution. You believe that they will provide the solution. You think that's right? Final question before I open up and you're itching to get in. Uh, the, the interesting thing about this book is that it's a wide field book. So you're thinking, you're looking at the global south, which is your experience, and you're, you're asking some serious questions. We asked the question, why didn't, why weren't our own citizens considered properly in terms of the effect of lockdowns. The, the glaring question is why, why wasn't the global south considered in terms of the effects of what the west decided to do because it was basically we took the Chinese policy and then the you know, supply lines were closed down and as you say you know I have a friend who, who works set up a charity in Ghana he tells me now on the streets in Accra there are four or five times as many kids 
begging on the streets in the world three or four years ago, the effect on, on that state has been incredible. You know, you're literally dealing with starvation. Uh, again, I, what's the question to you? We just didn't really consider it, did we? I, I, you know, it's something I, I, I you know, the, one, if there's one thing that makes me really angry about it, and I suppose this is quite personal, you know, it's that, you know, I, I, so as I mentioned, I'm a historian of pre-colonial Africa, you know, until now, my research finished in 1850, more or less. So, you know, as we all know, there's an enormous field of people working in international development. So, you know, I, I have been working with people who are now looking at this from a, from a development perspective and have come to me for some advice and criticism. There should be tens of thousands of people in the world who they would come to ahead of me. You know, there should have been tens of thousands of people working in development who, they, who would produce reams of reports which they would rather go to than a pre-historian in pre-colonial Africa. And, and, you know, the failure of uh, the development sector, call it what you will, is, 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 a, is, is you know, one of the most disgraceful things I can think of. Uh, and, 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 you know, the broader political question of, you know, you know why was this ever seen as, a, as, a, as a, 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 an achievable policy or a manageable policy? I think, I think a lot of it has to do with the expert. Who is it really aimed at? You know, is, you know, somebody from the WHO or the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation really going to go to a small village in northern Ghana or a small village in Senegal to actually see if this is happening? Of course then. Well, the, know, small, the small, as I said before we started, the yeah. small village in Ghana that we, that the charity works in most heavily, Asafo, was largely ignored. Actually, people just gone with it. But yeah. it's a long way from Accra. But yeah, it's aimed at basic. You know, what's re the real tragedy in those sectors? Were the inf you know, eighty-five international labour organisation says that eighty-five percent of of, pe of people in Africa work in the informal economy. They have to go out daily to earn money, and that means moving around. And uh, if you close down movement. Example, you know, my, my oldest friend in Africa who's a Senegalese man who I've known for over 30 years. You know, he had a job going to the coast on his motorbike, buying fish and coming back with it. If you stop doing that kind of thing, you just kill economic activity and people, whatever savings people had, they spent. And that has not come back. So, you know, that's why there are three or four times the number of kids on the street. Yeah. That's why. And if you stop immunising children... And then there's all yeah. those other yeah. health, you know, and the education yeah. issues. I mean, it's just... You know, it's one of the biggest scandals, frankly. You know, I had a friend in Senegal who said, you know, this is the policy that, you know, the Senegalese government has far and away the biggest public spending the Senegalese government has ever done. Now, that itself is a massive scandal. You know, the, the UN said in 2019, the median age in Africa is 19.8. Yeah. 19.8. And this is far and away the biggest public spending. That I mean, it's just an enormous yeah. scandal. And when you look at actually the characteristics of the actual disease, uh, how lockdowns could ever have been considered in, in countries that have it's, median it's, ages it's, it's of It's an enormous scandal. It's, it's astonishing. Okay, listen, I'm going to open it up. So, um, if you, we're going to have to do the boring thing of me repeating your answer, your question, because uh, we haven't a roving mic, but let's open it up. Come on, far away. Valerie. Toby, one of the things that really struck me during the COVID was, was a, a risk aversion by all the people who had responsibility in terms of making decisions. Uh, and it struck me that it was a very Western thing nowadays, that mm. people are simply not prepared to examine things on a risk basis, proper risk assessment. Mm. Do, you, do, you, do you see that playing out yourself when you were examining? Uh, that's a good question. I mean, I, I think risk is a... I mean, the thing, of course, about risk, I think social media has a big role to play. And, you know, you'll see polls done, you know, of like, you know, people, a lot of in the US, for example, I think something like, 
you know, of Democrats, you know, a lot of Democrats thought, you know, 40% of people died of, who caught COVID died of it, this kind of thing. So, you know, social media group thinks the way in which we are balkanized by, by this, uh, by, by algorithms, I think has a big part to play in it's, I mean, risk isn't really the real issue because, you know, reason doesn't convince, it, it's perception of risk, which is the real issue. And, uh, and perception of risk was shaped by people's social media things fundamentally. And those were utterly, you know, there was no reason to that. Uh, and as we know, social media tends to, tends to project the extreme of the more extreme views. And I think, again, it comes back to a crisis of technology as much as anything. And a supplementary to that is the people that are making the decisions. There's, there's nothing in for them if they are on the risky side, so to speak. Yeah. There's everything in it for them if they clamp down even yeah. harder. So yeah. the, it struck me that the pressure on the decision makers was to, to clamp down because they weren't going to lose by doing that. That's right. They could lose if they went the other direction. That's right. More of a risk to them politically mm. by going in a more um, liberal, for want of a better word, um, way of dealing with it. Yes, I think that's absolutely right. It, fundamentally, this was a political judgment. All the stuff that was said about following the science, yes. it, it was a political judgment, and then it became a moralising narrative, as I said. And, and um, yeah, and I, I, and I think that that does have to do with the way in which politics has sh changed through the relationship which, you know, instead of a personal relationship with constituents or a personal relationship with citizens, you know, it's mediated. And it's that mediation which has changed that relationship. I think that's, that's a, an important point. I, I, um, I think the, the, the problem for politicians was proximity. The, the media was hammering them for uh, granny dying now. That's proximate, it's politically salient now. And it, so, you know, you, as a politician, you can't really get away from that. Whereas if you, t if you make a decision that you defer and you redistribute some death, which is what they did. Uh, people dying of cancer or heart disease later on, non-proximate, is get out and they're not really held accountable. No one's asking the government about that now, but it's it's still happening. You see it in the excess deaths. So that's yes. proximity, isn't it? Real. That's proximity, and and then it's perception as well. You know, people could be asking the government about it now, but yeah. there's no perception of, of political advantage for the media or for the government in doing that. So yeah, yeah, they're, 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 they're not they're doing that. Yeah, um, Ben. Just thinking, um, what do you say the implications are of our government's decision in future national crises? That's a very good question. Uh, I, I mean, they could be many. We don't know. Uh, and, you know, that's one of the reasons, you know, I've written the book with Thomas and come here this evening. You know, uh, I think we have to discuss it. I think we have to, you know, we have to look at, you know, I'm a historian. I believe in looking at evidence and drawing conclusions. Uh, I don't think that anybody can look at the evidence and not draw the conclusion that lockdowns were a catastrophe. Uh, and I believe that, you know, very, very firmly from the bottom of my heart, which is why I will continue talking well, about That's what this. the evidence says. That's what the evidence says. Uh, but clearly, you know, there's a massive institutional risk. Coming back to the, to the question of risk, there's massive institutional risk in uh, accepting that. Uh, and, you know, so I think the, the starting point has got to be having conversations, which I try to do uh, openly as much as possible in a variety of fora to just accept that, you know, we can't just put this behind us. We've learned our lessons, get on, you know, we now have to do in a way, I think 
the hard work begins now, actually, really. The hard work is making sure that we find ways or, you know, people who challenge this find ways of, of feeding into institutions so that, uh, you know, this doesn't happen again. I don't think it's guaranteed to happen again. Uh, I think, um, but, you know... Are you, are you optimistic or pessimistic about that? I mean, it's a bit like, this, this is the Mike Tyson point, isn't it? Everyone's got a plan until they're punched in the face. And, you know, they, we had a plan, yeah. and then the, it comes, and then we just have a sort of mania. You know, it's like a, it, you know, it's, it's, it's still slightly bewildering to see what happened. I, I'm I mean, not sure. I think, I think the danger, I mean, for, in, in a way, I would say socially, uh, politically, if you like, the danger is, you know, were another new pathogen to emerge, it, you know, this was polarising. Can we imagine how polarising a, a subsequent one would be and how, you know, the responses are already more polarised and, you know, I think that, that in a way, you know, in terms of, you know, in terms of, you know, living in a, in, in a, in a, in a civic society, that, that's in a way, you know, the, the nature of debate and, and what's happened to it, I think, is just as much concerning as anything else in many ways, actually. Yeah. Don't let the quants take over. Yeah. Right, so, yeah, go on. Fascinating, It's very, it's very interesting. You know, the internet. Funny enough, I was talking to somebody about this. Uh, the, the international health regulations. A lot of people have spoken about. Now, curiously, uh, it seems that the actual regulations themselves when the revised uh, formulation came through themselves were not so controversial, but then amendments were made. Now, apparently the most controversial amendments, believe it or not, were made by Bangladesh. Uh, and, you know, this person was trying to find out on what basis Bangladesh had made these. I think it's still a very unclear picture. What were well. they? And um, these are the ones that, you know, the WHO's, uh, everybody would have to follow the WHO's mm. uh, model protocols. Yeah. protocols. Yeah. Um, I think it's an unclear picture. It's interesting. I think um, that it could, it, it clearly can be seen as a power grab. On the other hand, you know, I think one of the risks, uh, you know, I'm not saying that we shouldn't have a supranational health infrastructure. I think the fundamental problem with the WHO is not that the, it's not that the WHO exists. You know, we need, we do need, we need accurate centralised information. Nobody could disagree with that which then needs to be accurately communicated so that regional people can make appropriate decisions. You know, and there is clearly a role for a supranational organisation in providing that. The problem is that the WHO... The problem is that the WHO didn't operate like that during the pandemic. And, uh, and, and therefore, you know, it's, it's now seen as alarming that it will have that position. You know, fundamentally, we need root and branch reform of the WHO, which means getting rid of the revolt, getting rid of the private public partnership, which has seen, you know, organizations like the BMGF take such a major role in funding the WHO. You know, that's the fundamental issue. Yeah. Right. Uh, 
great forms, yeah. Go for it, yeah. Um, so you wrote about, in your book, about the contradiction of people that would consider themselves to be progressive, yeah. uh, left-wing, or, um, uh, you know, um, yeah. Who are anti um, inequality. Yeah. They mass inequality. Yeah. 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 It was wrong, but I can. I finally, I've told a few of you. You know, before I came here, I was at a research event as part of my job and presented my work on COVID and, and got quite a, you know, a, a reasonable reception. And uh, you know, nobody really disagreeing with the, you know the core elements of the way in which I framed it as you know the logical outcome of neoliberalism. Uh, so I think, you know, I think quietly, I think a lot of people. You know, people I had big arguments with, for example, in 2020, saying, oh, a year or two later, saying, well, of course, at that time, it wasn't clear quite where it was going. So I think actually that quite a few that, well, this is within academia, I think quite a few of those people are, you know, would say, yeah, it probably did go too far. Wouldn't necessarily want to look root and branch at it. Uh, and certainly wouldn't necessarily admit that, you know, that was a mistake. Um, I think in a way, I, it seems to me that the more of a problem is the political... <laughs> Is the political landscape? I, I mean, the academic, you know, academia is, you know, not that important. Uh, whereas, you know, the political landscape and the fact that, you know, the major political parties, you know, will not discuss this. And, you know, it's great that, you know, you, you are discussing this here, but, you know, so, as, so, as you know, we're you're, a small you're, party. You're, you're a small party and, and if you were a bigger party, you might not feel you could discuss it. And so it's our job to. Yeah, well, yeah. So, but I mean, I think, you know, the, the the, the complete omerta in the political class in the political class around it um, is is what is in a way most troubling. You know, it's intriguing. I think the one of the conclusions that you come to, and you, knowing your backgrounds, you you would have come to this conclusion. I think, but you, you call for the reassertion, as you say, of boundaries between public and private, and that, and actually, it's something that we believe in you know, deeply. Actually, the, the whole social market approach we have, and the way we, what we argue for is that there is a frontier between the state and the market and it's not respected you know the, yeah. the, the market's all over the state yeah. and the state starts becomes ineffective and, and it can do two things it can regulate and it can tax but it doesn't do anything and it doesn't defend its own borders very no. well we've got to get that back yes and I, you know and, and you know that that battle essentially was lost mm. and uh, yeah, I, I would say fundamentally it was probably lost in the 90s at some point you know in the in the major years and then the Blair, and the Blair well yeah. obviously start in the yeah. 80s yeah. but the, the you know it, National Rail wasn't tra privatized until major you know there was quite a lot which happened in the 90s he did that foolishly to prove a point it was yeah. a, a totally irrational yeah. move very very odd but anyway you know that battle has was was, was lost and um, and it and it and that has you know, we've lived through the consequences of that, and the consequences are pretty catastrophic. So, you know, I think. But if what if, if what doing doesn't work, then it's a, I mean, it's a, um, Thomas's other book, you know, which did with Bill Mitchell, and that a very good yeah. book, reclaiming the state. And I'd urge you to have a look at it. It's just about getting the state back in the business, so having a bit of confidence in doing things directly, direct, uncomplicated service provision of things, but having a little bit of confidence about what it should do and what it should leave to others. And I think, yeah, the signal point is i mean we might be dredging a bit but it it, it did work 
in Sweden. He he was taking a very independent view. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, and, and exactly. And I think that that's right. And you know, I think, I think, yeah. In a way, I think the word confidence is right. You know, clearly, people in you know the the, the state infra infrastructure and institutions and the people in them don't have the confidence. Demoralised. Yeah, demoralisation. I think, that, and that, and that does link to austerity and. Yeah some of the consequences of that. So, you know, I think that those are all connected. You know, people mm. don't feel valued as much for those decisions as they did, you know, 20 or 30 mm. years ago. Go for it, Simon. Yep. So, Jeremy, um, just going back to what you mentioned about the impact on West Africa as well. I'm going to go to South, but I'll put it to your speciality of yeah. West Africa. Um, obviously, the, you know, the, the impact on education and learning programs. But what do you think of the longer and wider consequences There have been massive political impacts already, I would say. I mean, you know, there's been huge protests in Senegal, for example, which are largely around the massive increase in poverty. Nigeria, the elections again, uh, fraudulent outcome almost certainly. The, person, the, the popular candidates supported by the youth. You know, there's a, an increasing real rift between the youth and, you know, the candidates who they support and the establishment within their, those countries. And, and, and there were a number of coups in 2021 and 2022, which some people think are connected to the, the, the economic and political chaos which COVID. So we've already seen consequences. Uh, and, you know, I come back to an article I wrote in Unheard at the beginning of the year where, you know, what happened to Africa rising. Some of you remember the 2010s were the decade which economists talk about Africa rising. You know, this was going to be the continent of the future, rising middle class. Now, if you look at those same economists, they're talking about, you know, austerity, Africa's debt crisis, you know, and they're saying that Africa was over leveraged. And of course, the point is that I made in that article that people take out loans when they're confident of their ability to repay them and they're given precisely. loans precisely because it was a booming economy. Mm. Uh, so it's really... Uh, intellectually dishonest to make that argument and uh, and you know the, that, the consequence of that is going to be you know 10 years you know 10 years of austerity in Africa is a pretty appalling con uh, prospect and of course it's the absolute worst thing you would do if you're actually trying to protect global health in fact uh, Oxfam published a report in Ox October last year which showed that over half of low-income countries had actually reduced healthcare spending during the pandemic so that's actually the consequence of it so. That's, I, I follow on from that. I think the debt dynamics, whatever it happens, you know, in, in other programs, the debt dynamics are completely ruined by this, aren't they? They, they I would say, say uh, equity is, is theory, debt is real, and, and the debt situation has just got, it's deteriorated. Yeah, I mean, I had an article actually out in Perspective magazine today where I argue that, in fact, the logical solution is, you know, all the billionaires or trillionaires who've made all this money, you know, Gates yeah. talks a lot about, you know, the problems in poor countries. Well, actually, as we saw, the Glen Eagle Summit in 2005, where a lot of low-income countries had their debt ruled out, one of the upshots was a decade of Africa rising. So if Gates really wants to help poor mm. countries, he simply should pay off the debt himself, and mm. then we can start again. Yeah. He's it's, made all, you know, him and, and a lot of people like him, like Zuckerberg, they've made such a lot of money in the last two or three years. Mm. Let them put that money to good use. Yeah, good observation. Um, another question? Go for it, yeah. I think I've sort of noticed that I think initially, yeah, it was panic and it was just a scale of uncertainty. I mean, there could have been like two million to the outer edge of the sort of potential. Uh, but as it went on, you just got this sense 
that they, they sort of thought, oh, this is a dumb way to crisis. This is an opportunity to try out what we're going to need in the future for climate change. You know, stopping people going on holiday. How much would people take in terms of lockdown, not driving as much, driving the car? Well, I mean, I think what I don't agree with about that, I mean, I, I, you know, the climate thing, I'm a, I don't entirely see the same paradigm there. But I, I, I mean, there, there's an element of it, perhaps. But I think it, um, my fundamental agreement with that statement is that I think there was very much a militarization of the response. I think this was very much a militarized response. We know that, actually, you know, I mean, there, there's quite a lot of evidence of the relationship between uh, military contractors and the Wuhan lab, for example, uh, and 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 relationship between you know, and for example, we've seen you know that in in some of the more recent revelations, the disinformation units that were set up, their connection to monitoring and quick monitoring organisations, you know, we know that this was a we know this was actually a militarised response, and in fact, you know, event two hundred one, which people often talk about, this uh, this tabletop. Uh, uh, wargaming around a pandemic which took place in November 2019 around a coronavirus pandemic which emerged in China uh, just a couple of months before the pandemic was announced. Uh, um, well, that was actually came out of a, a series, you know, decades of work by American security establishment on tabletopping, uh, you know, security uh, military conflict scenarios. So there's a, there is a, a deep connection between the militarized state and uh, and biosecurity, you know that 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 is a very close connection. There's a really interesting article by Christian Parenti in Compact Magazine about that just last week. Um, so I think that yes, that this this political response, uh, it, as I said, it was a political choice, but it was also connected to frame, broader frameworks of biosecurity and and the way that that was seen as a as as. Uh, you know, as a as a relevant paradigm for the future. So I think that's where I definitely agree with you. Yeah. yeah so right at the back there. Yeah. Thank you. Um, I've just based this on the, um, the sort of. Uh, I'm very interested in the, the world impact that you've talked about. I'll just keep it to the UK for now. Um, although I do base the behaviour and comments that I've witnessed on other countries that I've been in quite recently. Do you think? I mean, it's an enormous question. Um, yeah, it's a good way of putting it, fact-based scepticism, you know, or evidence-based scepticism. You know, of course, one of the uh, uh, leading figures in, in, you know, in scientists who took a different view was the professor of evidence-based medicine at Oxford, Carl Hennigan. But um, I can only say I hope so, to answer your question. You know, I mean, it is, it, it, it is, it is extraordinary. And I think, I think a lot of this is actually class-based, it seems to me. Mm. C certainly, you know, a lot of the response was class-based and, and very quickly, uh, those <coughs> people who had to go out and work, you know, if you had a very different take on it, it, it was my experience. And uh, I, don't, I don't know if that's a shared experience. And, and, you know, if you roll that around the world, you know, as I said earlier to, to you, William, you know, where was this, who was this policy fundamentally aimed at? It was aimed, a lot of it was really aimed at, I think, at middle-class middle class people, really. You know, the control mechanisms, the flights, you know, the surveillance, you know, if, if somebody's living in, you know, El Alto, which is a, a huge informal settlement outside La Paz, nobody really cares what, you know, in the state, 
the state doesn't really care. You know, the Aymara communities look after that themselves. So it was aimed at middle class, and I think the middle class largely, you know, took the bait. So, I I, and, 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 you know, whether that is going to change, not yet. I think there is, I, I, we always, um, some people don't like it about the SDP, but we do raise social class a lot, actually, because it is very relevant. What you call the laptop class, we mm. saw that in this country in the, in the lockdowns, because if you're, I mean, lockdowns suit a lot of people. A lot of people, if you've got a nice house and a nice garden, and the birds are singing and the traffic's down, and, and you can work from home, it's, it's, it's ideal, and you're saving, you know, you're saving money, your bank account's full of money. Yeah. Uh, if you're in a flat and you've got kids and you need to get out, or you've got an abusive partner and you've got to get out, and you yeah. can't get out, you're in real trouble. So the, yeah. this, the, this is the, I'm not, I don't, I don't think, I, I don't want to be conspiratorial about it, but, but who benefited? Well, a lot of people loved the lockdown. Well, I mean, it's, I, mean it's, I don't think it's conspiratorial. It's, it's simply about, you know, you, you, you form your, you know, we form concerns around the people that we know and love. And, you know, if the people that you know and love feel scared of this new, you know, you want them to be safe, you know, and that's a normal human response, you, you know, and you don't know Peruvian kids who are never going to go to school again, or, you know, you just, you know, that's not in well, your Well, that's, that's you know, the, that's the, that's so the, let alone, you're not, you're not your Amazon delivery driver who's going to actually bring you all your stuff. Yeah, for sure. So, you, so you the, know, there's two yeah. things there. The first thing, the first thing is that the, people forget that the food distribution and fat, you know, food production in this country didn't miss a beat. So if you, if you, you know, we, we have family members that were, were in that industry, blue collar, had to turn up and they turn up throughout the whole thing. No one ever yeah. questioned it. You had to turn up, yeah. make uh, food. Um, if you weren't in a situation like that, and you could you could laptop it fine. But just yeah, th this is fascinating. So you, you, uh, was it, is it to get it right? Was it Peru that hard lockdown really hard? Yes, 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 did, yes. massively hard lockdown. Uh, you know, an idea that was conceived elsewhere. And then, as you say, if you're in a a, a family unit in a very confined position, you're herding everyone together. You're locking everyone up in an aerosol-based uh, virus. Mm. That is one of the most. That is one of the most, you know, extraordinarily disgusting things. You know, I mean, obviously, I mean, there's a wonderful essay by an, an informatics academic and a, a philosopher who specialises in epidemiology mm. called "How Who Would Gain If You Locked Down in a Slum." Mm. How no? How would you look at lockdown a slum, and who would gain if you tried? I mean, the mm. fact is, of course, that if it's you. It's an important question. Yeah, it's a very important question because, of course, the fact is that actually what happened, and I think this is actually something that which, you know, we really have to confront. In fact, you know, the reason why, one of the main reasons why uh, people in lower socioeconomic classes had worse health outcomes was the lockdown. Because you're actually confining people yeah. Yeah. in a small environment with an aerosolized virus, which, you know, why did South Africa, which had one of the, you know, alongside Rwanda, the strongest lockdown in Africa, have the highest COVID death rates in Africa mm. by far. Why did Peru have the highest COVID death rates in the world mm. when it had the strongest lockdown in 2020? Well, you know, the evidence is, is there. It's because this is a policy which might suit people living in, you know, uh, suburbs of Geneva. But, but, um, but that, that is, as I say, that is in normal social science, you know, Kincaid, is it the Oxford Companion to Social Science? You can't yes. transport. No, you, know, you just can't do this. It, no, it's, it's, and that all of that went out the window. The other thing that I think is is, is strange. I, I was trying to draw a distinction between different types of expertise, particularly on predicting things. So I always think, you know, there's there's micro expertise, which is an engineer on an engine could make reliable predictions about what that's going to do, and it's you can even do control groups, and it's proper science. But open, as soon as you get into open systems, you get into real trouble. And open systems combined with 
modeling yeah. <laughs> you're in real trouble you know and the, and the the actually you can you can outline the how good was the modeling in previous well i mean people have worked on that you know and actually i mean actually come back to the point that was made by the gentleman at the back earlier oh no sorry this gentleman here about this the, the, the fear to start with and you know the, how many people might die if you look to previous pandemics it was a well-known fact that there was there was always a huge overprediction of mortality at the start you know this, this was the case in swine flu yeah, I think, well, you know, Neil Ferguson, well, obviously modelling is itself a quite a new science and, you know, Ferguson, yeah. But, I mean, the t swine flu is exactly the same, you know, I mean, I, we mentioned this in the book, you know, that, you know, the, mod the models predicted, you know, vastly more fatalities than actually happened. So anybody looking at the evidence would have, could have said, okay, the WHO says 3.4%, this is certain to be a massive overprediction, you know, certain to be a massive overprediction. Yeah. And, and as it turned out, yeah. Yeah, so modelling, yeah, we knew that it was... That was like, yeah, if, yeah. You, if, you, if you're judging it by the past performance, it's a logical thing. Go for it. Yeah, it's nice to be hearing a room full of people who agree with me. Feels <laughs> 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 was like a bit of a freedom of interest. Um, yeah. Yeah, I'd, I'd love to kick the Tories out of government for how badly they fuck things up, but the, the, the thing that puts me off is the thought that uh, if it hadn't been the Tories, it would have been Keir Starmer, not Mm. Harder. So my question is, what do we do? Right? I feel like we've won the argument. It's just no one wants to even have the argument. Uh, how do we express our frustration? Is good point. That, you know, it means anything. I don't feel like we're going to get a vote. Have we? Yeah. Well, uh, yes, I mean, well, I mean, you know, one of the things we talk about in the book, you know, I think we, I, I, for me, you know, what we really haven't, as, as societies, uh, properly engaged with it is the question of technology and its role here, you know, and in the last chapter of the book, we look at um, the role of democracy, you know, democracy is based on the model of rational choice, rational choice requires accurate information. We live in a world of misinformation. Everybody's producing misinformation, absolutely everybody, you know, from the, you know, WHO and, you know, around the Wuhan lab leak to uh, our own governments about a number of things to, our, you know, Russia and other governments as well. Everybody's producing misinformation. How in that circumstance uh, can people make rational choices? Uh, and, 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 and how does that reflect uh, in a democratic system? And for me, you know, I, I'm, I'm afraid I am an academic and I believe that we have to start by discussion about it and just airing the issues. And I just simply don't see anybody really having any kind of proper discussion about what the consequences of these massive changes in, in uh, human consciousness are. What can we do about, you know, politically? I think, you know, actually, I would say, you know, I, I presented, Thomas and I presented the book at the All-Party Parliamentary Group on Pandemic Response, which is co-chaired by... Graham Stringer, who is in the Labour Party, yeah. and Esther McVeigh. And, uh, you know, if you really want to, for example, I actually would say we need to work, think beyond the nation, I would say, in, in responding to this. You know, this has got to be a collaborative framework, you know. And the reason that the international health regulations were not passed by uh, last year was that African governments voted against them. So actually what we really need to do is work collaboratively with people across the world who understand the ways in which these policies uh, we're a disaster. If we work, you know, in our own 
little cocoon, whether it's, you know, within a political party or with it, with it, even within a nation state, you know, uh, that's, that, I don't think that will, that would be my, yeah, I mean, I agree. Politically, the landscape is bleak uh, in, in this country. Um, but, you know, if, uh, you know, I've, I've certainly gained, so for example, I organized, I co-organized a conference on the impact of COVID restrictions in lower middle income countries. One of the consequences was that we're feeding into some, a response of, of an organization which works very closely with, uh, with, with uh, poorer countries, lower middle income countries, which are responding to the IHR. So there are ways we can feed into that, but it, it, in my view, it involves working internationally. Go, yeah, go for it. Do you feel like progress is being made? Or, you know, I, I mean, I have seen some progress in this document. <laughs> what will happen, I can't say. You see, I don't, I'm not sure that that's really, tr I, I think it's one of those, you know, I think if you look at human psychology, you know, if we have a bad experience, most people want to just forget it. You know, that's one, amnesia is one of the main ways we deal with a bad experience. I think most people think of it as a bad experience. And I don't think they just think COVID was a bad experience. I think they think they can see the consequences. They know it was bad. And actually, I do think that from my experience, actually with people I work with, actually some people are quite, you know, respect you and are pleased that you are raising it. Uh, so I think, just keeping it actually i don't think people think it's a crackpot thing i actually think that if you know i have very perhaps almost uniquely not been cancelled for the work i've done on this and uh, i think that that is because people actually know that there is a, a message which they need to that needs to be heard and i think we just have to carry on talking about it maybe they maybe they 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 Maybe they're maybe like, I'm more of an optimist than you are. I don't know. Well, maybe they, no, but also who you are. I mean, maybe maybe you have avoided cancellation because people and Thomas to some extent as well. People would look at it. You're doing the work in good faith. You're not. You know. I, I think that's maybe that's. A, yeah, I mean, there's that. I think you know some of the work I've done before, maybe. Uh, and I think, but I also do think you know. I think fundamentally, because I come from the perspective of somebody who's worked a lot before on West Africa. Everybody knows who works in this area knows that this is the case. Everybody knows it was a disaster, and nobody wants to start criticizing me for it because they know they'll lose the argument. Yeah. Oh, well. Well. I, no. I totally agree with that. I think yeah. the, the, we we always say the prime reason that people don't engage in uh, open debate about things is they're not very confident about yeah, the not, position. They, and that's yeah. sure the same with you with political party. You no, know, that's true. Debate it with you because they know. Uh, it's BBC, true. You know, BBC won't have you on because they know that you win. You win the argument. You know. Well, I've been on five times, but oh, that's right. very rare. Yeah. <laughs> it is. It's the right down the well, bottom. I've been on once. So. Yeah. No, that's shockingly, <laughs> yeah, yeah, shockingly yeah. bad. No, uh, it it is just. And actually, it isn't. This this topic isn't top of the pops now because I agree. There's a, there's a sense that people just want to put it behind them. But we, I mean, it's these are important questions, and if we don't ask them, who will? That's the point. Mm. Um, any other questions? Yeah, Valerie. On the same topic, do you have any confidence that the COVID inquiry will actually come up with some concrete uh, assessment of what went on, fact-based, uh, or do you think it will be just a political stitcher? Judging on the basis of previous public inquiries? <laughs> well, I'm, I'm, I mean, you know, there, there isn't a very good track record where that goes, so I... Um, and as I think I was saying to some of you before we started, you know, Lucy Easthope uh, said today that I think she doesn't expect to have a hard copy before 2030. And so I think, you know, public inquiries are a great way of, of making lawyers money and kicking something into the long grass. But I assume you've not been... I have not been invited to participate in the public inquiry, no. 
But that's something that the, the governments and the societies feel is necessary. Maybe. Yeah, like, I think that is also true. Is it like yeah, a sort of? There, there, there's a symbolic element to it. Yeah. There's a sort of. It's, in a way, it's. A, I'm not knocking it. I mean, you know, we'll obviously listen to it and see what it says. But it's a sort of. It's a sort of displacement activity. I think there's a thing, and you're right. There's a symbolic element to it, and and you know, and there is obviously, and I think this is. I want to be very clear about this. You know, a lot of people did suffer awfully from COVID because the policies were bad you know particularly people from you know as we said you know not from the abc one uh, social mm. classes who you know were going out working anyway contracting covid coming back to you know yeah. confined accommodation and so on and, and you know those stories certainly should be heard uh, in a public inquiry but what won't be heard of course is why the policy response failed those those people no, these are these are massively important questions because the, i people talk about how long will the effect the tail effect of what's of what the policy did how long will it last? And I, forever, in a sense, it's, it's so big. I mean, it, it, you, you, you don't, you don't yeah. get over it. I mean, it's certainly in, in the, I know, I know Thomas is keen on MMT, but I, I'm not convinced, but you know, you, 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 you create another half trillion of public debt. You know, yeah, you, there's a tail effect of that on all of public. I mean, I think it's one of the interesting things I found out, you know, MMT, you know, my perspective on MMT is yeah, a, a bit different in that I, I think also, you know, what's the effect around the rest of the world? Not, not everyone has a central bank, yeah. which yeah. people will feel happy to take on another half trillion dollars of debt yeah. or whatever. And that's going to event, inevitably cause inflation in it, you know, low income mm. countries as far as I can see. Mm. But, you know, we, one of the great things I've learned from this whole experience is, you know, you shouldn't have to agree with everybody about everything. I'm sure we have disagreements in this room and that's as it should be. You know, uh, you know, but we should be able to discuss openly and understand mm. each other's point of view. That's got to be the starting point. It's a primary, point. it's a starting yeah. point. Yeah, that's what we want. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. And my recollection, looking back, was images of lines and lines of populace from Brazil. They really seem to focus in on Brazil being absolutely terrible. Yeah. And I don't remember yeah yeah was that i mean brazil is obviously you know by far the biggest country in Latin america and and actually funny enough i once did some research in peru and i met uh bbc well he wasn't a bbc he was an english journalist but he wasn't a bbc journalist but he had come to cover a wto meeting in peru and he was based in brazil so a lot of internet most international journalists who cover south america will probably be based in brazil might be easier for them to get coverage there are, you know, there are various issues at play. You know, the broader issue, though, I think, I mean, and there were, I did see articles, there were, I remember Channel 4 News had a, had a shocking piece, actually, right at the start of, of, of the pandemic around a Peruvian family walking, you know, hundreds of miles to their home village from Lima, because, and so there was some coverage of it. But, um, you know, I think the, the broader question about the media, I think, is, you know, is, is a concern, really, this, this trusted news initiative, which is and we look at it in the final chapter of the book and i'd be interested to know on your view on this actually william you know mm. if you've come across it but you know the trust news initiative which shaped the single the single narrative you know basically what was acceptable discourse what was a conspiracy theory whether it was the wuhan lab leak in 2020 uh questions around transmissibility if you were vaccinated from covid in 2021 now all these things which subsequently turned out not to really be no, true. I think that's, but, I, but, my, but, my view is that that's yeah. another attempt by a certain class of people in, in media to to create uh, acceptable narratives, filters. They're trying to filter 
It's, a, it's, a, it's the same in a sense as to who gets a microphone in front of them on the BBC, the fact that you haven't been invited to talk once, about your book. Once, I, no, well, yeah, once. No, you know, once. So, you know, no, I think it's, it's very, very strongly filtered. And I think that's just a, an international way. Because the BBC were up to the necks in that, yeah. weren't they? So yeah. They, they, yeah, it doesn't surprise me at all. Were you getting at the point, you see, I wondered, on the point about Brazil and Peru, you're quite right. I mean, you know, the outcomes were massively different, but the the salience or the but i think a lot of it was anti-bolsonaro and i think a lot of, and you know I'm, I'm not a fan but the point is that you know they 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 do go for that sort of uh leader and yet it's not so much what you do it's who you are because if you're jacinda as done you get away with it easily you get away with doing things i mean how what do you make of new well, zealand I mean, I th- you know it's quite new puzzling. zealand yeah i mean yeah, I mean, the Brazil question, I mean, I'll just touch on the Brazil question for a bit. I mean, you know, I've spent quite a lot of time in Brazil. I have quite a lot of colleagues in Brazil. And we're going to do this all in Portuguese, by the way. We decided uh, not to. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, you know, a lot of the things that Bolsonaro said about COVID were quite off the yeah. spectrum. And, and yes. you know, I, I think the problem was precisely the lack of a discussion and a middle ground. You know, mm. there could have mm. been a middle ground on so many of these issues if the pre-exist and that's one of the arguments as you know in the book william you know that the pre-existing narrative had already become so polarized that that wasn't possible and that speaks to coming back to the point about technology that polarization i think most of us would probably agree is in some way or other produced by you know the algorithms and the technology which we have uh new zealand um yeah well i mean you know new zealand's policy you know depending on who you are kind of worked okay for new zealand Yes, you know, it's a particular yeah. thing. It's the same in Australia. It's, it's yeah, if you're an island in the Southern Hemisphere, outside of the f- flu season, uh, when the summer, when it, you know, when we, when it started to spread. Uh, but of course, one of the things we learned, and I think that's really interesting, actually, is the idea that, in fact, you know, given the nature of global supply chains mm. now, Australia tried very hard. You know, some of you probably know. You know, it had the most extraordinary policies. You know, only 32 people were allowed in on every plane. Sometimes less. Uh, I know somebody, I know a friend of a friend who was visiting his son in Australia and wasn't allowed to leave 18 months, even though he's not an Australian citizen. I mean, you know, really quite extraordinary. You can get, you can... You and, but at the same time, they couldn't keep, they couldn't keep the fucking virus out. And they no, they weren't. They couldn't keep it out because of the nature of global supply chains. Because in the end, they, mm. the world now requires movement and that movement will bring it sooner or later. But I agree, there's a, there's a slight difference. The The... I mean, Australia and New Zealand are a long way from anywhere else. You know, a city like Perth is a long way from even other cities in, in Australia. And, yeah. and I could see them, if, if it was predicated on let's close up completely and then wait for a, a, um, a vaccine, then it sort of makes sense. And I could, I could understand. We were, we're an Anglo-Australian family. We were, you know, two family members that, no, two family members and the total quarantines we did as a family were three mm. and and a very close family member got literally got up on the last flight out that weekend in in march, in march. Yeah. yeah and and it had that hap- not happened We've i don't know for 18 months probably, that would have yeah. been very yeah. challenging yeah, yeah so it's slightly so there's all, those elements, there's all those human elements yeah. you know that we you know that i think yeah as i say coming back to the point you know most people would probably rather forget yeah. No, it's not so, terribly popular. But but to get back to this point about who does what, I I, I really think I, I I firmly believe that, in, in not just this, in terms of other areas, other domains of politics, or you know decisions, you know, which I've been very critical of constantly about, you know, crazy decisions to invade countries like Iraq or Afghanistan or whatever. Um, it, it isn't 
it isn't always what you do, it's who you are. It's who, who's doing it. You know, it's which politician is arguing. And they get, certain politicians are on the good step and certain politicians, probably rightly, are on the naughty step. But the way the media deals with the different classifications of politicians is, is, is really very bent, actually. That's just the way it is. Oh yeah, no, there's no, no. I think a lot of it's very, very, it's, it's very challenging. But it, who you are, I mean, you see this in American politics, literally all the time. You know, um, I won't name them, but certain governors of certain states literally get away with all sorts of things. It's not reported because they're in the good step. And yeah. then you know, yeah. and th we know this happens. We did, this is just a fact of political life. It is, it's where it is. Yeah, uh, yeah. I think that's probably true. Right. Any final questions? Oh, yeah. Go for it. Yeah. Real kickback. Huh. I think that is a good question. Uh, I don't even know if I want to answer that question. I, I think um, clearly other countries were worse. So, we, I mean, let's look at Spain. You know, it was bad here. It was worse in Spain, you know, where in the first lockdown, uh, you know, dogs had more rights than kids. You know, dogs were, allowed out yes. for, dogs were allowed out for a walk a day. You know, kids weren't allowed out at all for the first, whatever it was, seven weeks. Yeah. Uh, and that was accepted. Uh, so, you know, and as I said, in the Philippines, people weren't allowed out for 17 months. I think that compliance with the more extreme end had quite a lot to do with the nature of the government. I think where governments were more authoritarian, compliance was higher because... Well, no, I would say authoritarian. So I'm thinking of countries like Angola and the Philippines, for example. You don't you know, if Duterte, you don't if Duterte says, you know, your kids aren't allowed out, you probably might think that you're probably not going to let your kids out very much. Uh, uh, and in Angola, similarly, another authoritarian regime. So I think that, you know, compliance, whereas, you know, for example, for example, I was talking to this colleague from Bolivia who said that in Bolivia, yeah, you know, people in some areas where the state didn't really control what was happening, people didn't obey. So I think it had a lot to do with the relationship which people had to the state. I think the other thing was the trust people had in the state. You know, by and large in, you know, Britain, most people, not everybody, it depends on the community, and some people have very different relationships with the state, of course, but the majority of citizens have, have trusted the state and trusted the, trusted the state advice. So I think a lot of it had to do with trust of the state as well, actually. I, I think they missed a trick. I think this is the problem. When, when, the, when the pandemic happened, uh, you know, chair a little community council in Northumberland. We, we organized a pandemic sort of volunteer system and we, you know, divided the settlement into six zones. Now, we were inundated with people helping. And actually, if, if some of the requests had not been mandatory, but were goodwill voluntary mm -hmm. requests, do you think they would have been as successful? Do you think the government's missed a trick in, in terms of the goodwill that people had? I mean, people did have a lot of goodwill. I mean, but the systems weren't there to replicate. One of the interesting lessons, for example, is that countries which had an existing framework, which instead of creating a new framework, if people were able to expand an existing... So, for example, this conference I mentioned on low middle income countries, one of the lessons was, you know, countries which had expanded social provision before, like Cambodia, for example. Mm. Good example. Cambodia, poor country, but was able to provide furlough. It was mm. able to expand the existing safety net mm. that it had. Mm. Uh, similarly, Nicaragua had massively expanded its healthcare provision. Was mm. able to, and that expand. So 
if you have, but the problem we had, I think, in this country was that we didn't really have anything like that. So, mm. you know, the volunteer system, which was set up by the NHS, you know, I, it certainly didn't work for me. I mean, I signed up to it. I didn't, it didn't really cut. So I think, I think that there, we, there, we, there were a lot of teething difficulties, I would the, say, because we didn't actually have those. It's very patchy, isn't it? Yeah. There's some, some with, with high social participation and so on, you, you, we, you were inundated. We had, we had you okay, know, you the difficulty yeah. I had was how do you, how do you, you know, what do you do with the volunteers, <laughs> frankly? Yeah, but, yeah. Uh, and it continued right the way through and we did it. We ran prescriptions, we got, ran food and it was, it was, it was no problem getting people to do it. Yeah. Wouldn't be the case everywhere. No, no. Uh, it, 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 you know, it does depend on that sort of thing, mm. but yeah. Mm. Okay, listen, I think we've had, we're nearly, uh, yeah, we're, we're time's up now. I'd just like to thank um, Toby and Thomas for writing this book and it's a pity Thomas couldn't be here, Rome uh, beckoned for him, so staying at home, but I, I think he and uh, Toby deserve a round of applause. This is a necessary book and I would urge everyone to take a look, check it out. Thank you. Thank you.